If a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, what might her life look like? How would she celebrate and support the arts, music, her community, and the preservation of Earth, its beauty, resources, and creatures? Tune in Thursday at 4 p.m. on KUCI 88.9 FM and streaming live at KUCI.org for What Would Arwen Do? with me, Tani Tanuvia. Elin Salalumin Omentielva. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. It's time for Privacy Piracy with Mari Frank, and now here's Mari Frank. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. Tonight we're so lucky to have Jake Bacon helping and filling in for Lloyd uh, as our wonderful engineer. So thank you, Jake, for joining us. My pleasure. Well, Jake, you know, recently I was reading in the register about all sorts of uh, investment fraud. You know, we all want to get rich, right? Right. So I got a couple questions for you because the uh, Securities Exchange Commission recently did a survey. So you tell me what you think and I'll tell you what the answer is. In this survey, uh, the study found out a lot about fraud victims. So what do you think? Are men or women more susceptible to um, investment fraud? What do you think? I'm going to have to say men are more susceptible. And why do you think that? Uh, well, I have a preconceived notion. Actually, I think it's an educated notion that uh, women are more prudent in money matters, more careful, careful, smarter about money. Oh, you're terrific. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there <laughs> saying yes. Well, guess what? You're right. Men are more susceptible. Okay, here's another one. What do you think? Married uh, people versus unmarried people. Which ones are more susceptible? I think married people. You're right. Married people are more susceptible to investment fraud. Why do you think that? I, be, I bet because they're more attractive targets because they've probably established greater uh, lines of credit maybe. or Oh, and there's two incomes maybe? Yeah, there you go. And they're figuring we want to save a nest egg. I, I, I don't know. They don't say the answer exactly why. But you're right on number two. Okay, how about this one? What do you think? People with higher education or uh, lower education? or lo- Let's see. The question is, you have higher levels of um, education and income than the general population, do you think they have, uh, they're more susceptible to investment fraud, or do you think those who are lower income and less education? Uh, This is really a guess, but I'm going to say, again, uh, those with higher incomes because I would think that they're, uh, and education because they're a better target. You're right. Absolutely right. And also, what about this one? Um, Who do you think... uh, well, I guess this is the answer. I'm sorry about this one. It says, it also found that fraud victims uh, may make themselves vulnerable be- by those who are more willing to listen. So, uh, you know, if you're more willing to listen, you probably get persuaded more. I believe that. So, and here I tell people, you know, always listen. And I don't know if that's really the right thing. Just don't <laughs> listen to, to fraudsters. This article was interesting. It was all about, you know, all those free lunches and free dinners that they give. You know, come and hear about all these oh. real estate investments or come and hear about these great investments. And this was a, a really kind of pathetic article about this poor guy that lost his whole life savings from, you know, his retirement because he went to a, a luncheon, a free lunch that cost him like 380 thousand dollars that he lost his whole you know retirement that he was planning on investing so wow but he got lunch for free but he got lunch for free so it was the most expensive free lunch that he ever could imagine but tonight we are going to be talking with someone who i have known for about 20 years um 
Not too often do we speak with people locally, but I am thrilled to be speaking with a certified public accountant right here in Newport Beach. He's terrific. I know him. My clients have used him. I've used him. I think he is really a top-notch certified public accountant. He happens to also be a forensic accountant. So those of you who don't know what a forensic accountant is, Steve is going to explain to you. So let me tell you a little bit about Steve. Um, Because he's going to talk about protecting your privacy and security when you're trying to invest. Steve is a CPA from Newport Beach, California, and his areas of concentration include business valuation, fraud investigations, mergers and acquisitions, consulting, and forensic accounting. He's very well recognized as an expert witness in the California Superior Court, and he has achieved the American Institute of CPAs designation, and uh, he's accredited in business valuation. He's also a certified valuation analyst, they call that a CVA, and a certified fraud examiner. And he's been an instructor here at UCI and the Extension and the California University, uh, California State University at Long Beach Extension Program. And he's presented at numerous bar and CPA programs, and he's also an author. And his website is www.zamucen, that's Z-A-M-U-C-E-N, dot com. And you can learn more about him on our website, see his picture, and um, see listen to his interview again if you want to. So thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Well, thanks, Maury. I know you've had a busy day in court, so we're really thrilled to have you. Oh, same here. Okay, so Steve, first of all, how did you ever decide to make forensic accounting really um, the basis of your career? Well, uh, years ago, um, uh, I was a CPA, but I'd also um, had been a uh, business broker and um, and also had a few years there where I was a investment real estate broker. So when you have um, a number of different um, careers or a number of different areas that, that I had worked in, um, it made it easy for me to um, go into forensic accounting because generally you're asked by the courts or by a an attorney or by a judge to give an opinion. Yep. And when you have um, er- different areas of expertise, that it seemed to help, and so I became a forensic accountant. You know, a lot of people tell me when I talk about getting a forensic accountant, because, you know, in my practice I tell my clients to get a forensic accountant, they, they want to know if you deal with dead people, you know, because that's what they see on television. So could you kind of explain to our audience, you know, we have university students, we have business people, what exactly does a forensic accountant do? Well, similar to probably what you see on TV, it does deal with the forensic side, which is the court side. And, um, and a forensic accountant is generally an accountant that, goes, that deals with a litigation case and goes to court. And um, I've read where it means bring to the forum, or an accountant will go to the forum, which is the court, and he'll testify or she'll testify and give an opinion that the judge will uh, use or the jury will use. Steve, we have a lot of people driving by who are business people here in Newport Beach and Irvine. And so a lot of them, you know, don't really know exactly what you would do when you're valuing a business. Can you kind of give an example or an overview of how, uh, what a forensic does when valuing a business perhaps to sell? Sure. Um, the businesses we deal with are private businesses. So if they're a public business, then we're not hired because you can go to the stock market and, and look up the business and figure out what the total value is based on the number of people that own it and then the price per share. So um, when we value a business, we're looking at a private business, which could be a, uh, a, um, um, as small as a uh, retail restaurant, a retail store or a restaurant, or it could be a um, a, a car dealership or something along those lines. Or oh, you do doctors and lawyers, too. Doctors, professionals. lawyers, professionals, manufacturing, yeah, just about anything over the years. But um, to answer your question in valuing a business, um, we, uh, we look at it almost like you value a house. There's like three uh, methods, and the three methods are the um, cost approach, which is to look at similar to a house, what it would cost to build, what's it cost to put this business together, a uh, market approach, uh, similar to a house, what, what's the house next door sell for, can, and then a business, can we find a business that's sold um, that's similar, and, and the income approach, which is similar to an investment piece, piece of real estate where 
where you determine what the income is of the um, business, the net income, and you use a multiplier like a price-earnings ratio that you use in a public company, and, and then you, you can determine what the, um, what the uh, value is based on a multiplier times the net income. Um, which, what's different than a public company, which has audited statements, is that a private company, you can have audited statements. Many times you don't, and so you have to go and dig and try to figure out what the company really makes. So what advice do you have for somebody? You know, lots of times I have people who say they want to buy into a company or take over a company or, or you know, what kind of advice would you have for somebody if they're thinking of buying a, a retail company or a small manufacturing company? Well, the, the advice is to um, uh, really do your due diligence, and, uh, and there's a lot of areas that you'd have to touch on to, um, before we even attempted to um, uh, close a transaction. So, I mean, I can go through a long list, but uh, the due diligence process on a, on a private company is very long. Yeah, so they should, they should use someone like your services to, to kind of find out what it is that they, they need to get. You give them like a list of what they need to get from the company. Is that right? Sure. And, uh, and the team usually is the easiest way to have someone help you with the list. So the team usually is a um, CPA and then uh, a, a uh, business appraiser to help you determine the value. And then, of course, a competent attorney to help you with the transaction. And then um, you may have a couple other advisors, which might be an industry expert to help you understand the industry. Right. And, and so then, then they make up all the questions. And, and then how do you know if somebody's, you know, playing with the books and, you know, you worry about it that somebody inflates the, the value of the business, making it look a lot better than it does? That, that's, that's, that's a tough business, too, huh? Well, what happens is uh, in a private company, is you're hitting the nail on the head, and in a private company, you're relying on usually the owner to give you his set of books, and, and you're relying on the competency of those books. Um, and, even, and you can even have audited books that I alluded to that, that you really can't rely upon because auditors, when they give an opinion as a CPA, they sometimes say any, any transaction uh, under ten thousand dollars is immaterial, so we're not going to really audit those very hard, and um, and those transactions may mount up to be um, a lot of money. But so the so it's the the job of the forensic accountant, which we're hired to do when people buy businesses, or or the CPA or the accountant that's going in to look at the books, is is basically to do a, a common sense check and see if, it, if what the person's selling is really, uh, they're selling an income stream is really what they're making. And so, and so that, that, just to give you an overview, I'm not getting into all the details, and, um, which can get sometimes pretty boring, but the overview is you want to verify that the receipts of the business uh, make sense. One way to do that is to look at the bank statements and determine what really was collected. Um, and compared to um, what was actually sold based on the sales invoices. And then if you go through an income statement, you'd have to go through every line and basically determine um, what would be a reasonable expense compared to what was spent. And then after you do that, you'll determine the net income. Um, but there's, there's many ways of, um, of um, people that skim money or, or don't report money and uh, and many times they sell you a business and, and have you trust that they actually make more than they do. So you have to go through the receipts and the disbursements on it with a fine line. Right, and you have that ex- expertise as a certified fraud examiner. That's, that's really tough because you've really got to look between the lines and, and probably make some phone calls and, and become a private investigator, too. Sure, <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, so you wear lots of different hats. Now, let me ask you, so, you know, with one out of two marriages ending in divorce and so many people having their own businesses, uh, that also gets to be a problem. So tell us a little bit about what you do with forensic accounting in the divorce arena. Well, our firm, and I have three other partners, our firm's been doing divorces for over uh, 20 years. So what, um, in the divorce arena, we're usually asked to do a number of things, which, which obviously is um, to value a business so that the community can divide it, to figure out what one spouse is making for um, child and spousal support, and then, to, and then also to do other areas that, of accounting for the money and the divorce. Um, in the valuation of a divorce, uh, it becomes um, uh, an interesting task if one of the parties, uh, one spouse is saying that the other spouse 
is hiding some money after they separate. And so, um, and so after doing this over the years, you, you become accustomed to looking at uh, businesses if they're uh, professional companies that's run by the uh, one or a handful of owners. Um, you may look at to see that all the receipts are, are collected compared to the uh, sales. If all the bank accounts are, are given, um, you may actually go to look at a calendar to see if uh, the uh, the appointments that they actually are indicating are they're collecting money from the appointments that they said they've made. Um, other businesses, which, for example, a manufacturing business, you, a lot of times the inventory is uh, understated, which uh, may minimize the profits. So just a uh, common sense approach as you walk around the uh, manufacturing plant and see what you see as far as inventory. Um, in a uh, retail uh, uh, operation, a lot of times the uh, you have to go to the cash register tapes and compare those to the collections for the day and, and the um, bank statements. So after you do it for a number of years, there, there's usually a, a pattern of where people may not be reporting their income. Yeah, people don't realize how really important the forensic accountant is in divorce. I mean, because here, like you were talking about, we're in a community property state, so you're supposed to be able to equalize the, the what each party gets, husband and wife. And uh, when there is... When people work for another company, it's pretty easy. You know, you can do the calculations for support because you see what they get. You know, you see what their their pay stub is. But when somebody works for themselves, you got to figure out what is their real cash flow, <laughs> and what you know, what do you have to add back in, and and then of course you got the issues when somebody owns a house prior to marriage, and then you got to figure out, okay, well. Uh, part of this is separate property, and part of this is community. But uh, you guys do a great service. I know with my mediation clients, it's a godsend because uh, those of us who are attorneys, if we could even add right, we'd be you know we could be accountants, but we're not. So we need you guys. Well, you're to, very to... <laughs> good at, at the other part. We, hopefully, we can give you the numbers so you can then settle the case and, and make sure everyone comes out all right on the case. Uh, but and in, in going through the uh, getting back to the determining what a business makes, if you think that nothing's not everything's been reported. Um, I've ran into cases where um, we thought we had all the information and we didn't. And actually, I was on a case one time where um, the spouse, the out spouse, and many times that's the woman, she, she called the IRS and the IRS came in and they didn't even find it. And the judge came down and he looked around the company and, and uh, he didn't see it. And then years later, we found out that, that this manufacturing company um, actually had two sets of books <laughs> but that's commonplace but they had two sets of books but they were still they were doing the two businesses on the same location uh-huh. and um, and usually what a, what someone does when they're um, not giving a total accounting of what they're making they usually include the expenses and um, but they don't include the income because they don't want to pay a lot of taxes uh, this this individual was was uh, had another set of books where he didn't include the income or the expenses in those set of books and and what he reported. So um, sometimes they're pretty smart. Oh goodness! Well, he he obviously had uh, somebody advising him that was was pretty sharp but uh, pretty underhanded. Now I know that your office also does some uh, forensic accounting for for the uh, for the DA, right? So uh, tell us a little bit about that. That's interesting stuff. Uh, well, we're hired sometimes by police departments that are, are looking into fraud where they want to um, prosecute with the DA, um, and we will go through uh, uh, books and records to determine how much money was stolen. And that, that's usually, uh, many times that's a similar pattern, and it, a lot of times it's the bookkeeper that, um, that's been a long time trusted bookkeeper that's stealing the money. You know that is that is so sad. I I had a uh, a case in which a book a a, an, a um, what was he? He was an ophthalmic surgeon who had um, a big practice, an ophthalmologist, and his bookkeeper um, was siphoning money off because a lot of the elderly clients were paying with cash. So he was siphoning the money off, and then he went into another city. This is in Illinois, and he opened up his own um, optomic uh, uh, office and was using the uh, MD's license to sell glasses. <laughs> oh, geez. So he was siphoning off money 
from the ophthalmologist from his own practice when he was doing, you know, the bookkeeping. And then again, he was also stealing his identity and his profession and opening up another office and running his own books and pretending to be this ophthalmologist and getting the money on these glasses. So uh, it's it's very scary to be trusting these people that when there's no oversight, you know. I mean, it, it seems like you... What do you advise people when they own a small business and they have a bookkeeper? How do they, how do they make sure that they don't get ripped off um, fraudulently by those people who are working with them? That's a good question. The, 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 um, the main thing that they can do is separate the duties of anybody doing their accounting and, and, and also um, check it themselves. So most of the time, if you have a person that's collecting the money, and depositing in the bank and and posting all the entries and writing the checks and then reconciling the checks that come back and they have total control over the accounting system and the money coming in and the disbursements so what happens usually is they they make entries into the computer that that are fraudulent but there's no one and and they give the computer information to the owner of the company but no one's ever looking at the checkbook and um seeing really what went out of the uh, bank account and I was looking at seeing, seeing what was actually deposited. In fact, um, we have about five cases going on now, and that's, that's the case. It's just that if the uh, owner of the company simply had opened his checkbook every, every month and looked at every check written or the, or the check sent back to him in the bank statements, rather, and, um, and also had done some spot checking on what deposits were actually put in the bank, um, then they never would have run into this problem, and it didn't. In one case, it's add, added up to over a million dollars. Wow! Yeah, I know it, it's so scary because what happens is that people start to get you know they trust somebody, they figure this is a loyal employee, they've been here with me ten years, so they give them more and more authority. They let them sign checks, they let them do everything, and it's and it's almost like a tease. And those people who aren't making enough money start to just say, well, you know, they trust me. I'll just take it for what it's worth, and it's, uh, it's, it's really pathetic. Yeah, usually, usually, that's a good point. Usually it's, they, have, they think they're going to pay it back, or, or as, as you say, uh, they're trusted, but they also think that they deserve more money. So they, they justify it before they take the money. Right. So, Steve, what you're saying is that you should really divide the duties, have one person maybe in charge of uh, checking the, the the bank statements and reconciling another person writing the checks for the month and, and kind of divide those duties up as much as you can and maybe make sure that if it's a small business that you sign all the checks yourself, right? Sure, sign all the checks yourself. Yeah. No, that's one thing I do. I, I have two people basically doing and then I don't let anything go out with anybody signing anything but me. So, of course, you know, I've got a small business, but, yeah, I've seen enough fraud that I've been a little bit more worried about it. Sure, and then it's common sense... Um uh, who you hire. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate enough that, that we, we have about 15, 20 people in our firm, and, um, and most people have been here many, many years, and, uh, and we, we know each other very well. And, and also, most people would never do that because, you know, they fortunately built up some equity in their house, and they, uh, and they, and they have a nice lifestyle, but they, they would never jeopardize that, and number one. And number two, they're also not that type of person. Right, right. Well, that's another thing we tell people, you know, nowadays when you're going to let someone have access to your sensitive information, which is basically your finances, you need to do a background check and see if there's anything out there lingering. I I had uh, one case in which um, uh, a gentleman, if I want to call him a gentleman, he had committed fraud and uh, embezzlement against his best friend. Um, He was going through a divorce with, you know, with me and him and his wife. And um, he had been fired a couple times for embezzlement, but nobody reported him to the police. Do you see that too? Yes, I, I've seen that. The, the um, certified fraud fraud examiners, the the organization I belong to, um, it's it's not a large percent that gets reported to the police. It's um, it's under forty um, percent. Why do you think that is, Steve? Well, a couple reasons. Um, one, uh, there's one reason might be embarrassment. Um, uh, another reason might be um, that the police um, have enough to do, and unless it's a certain dollar amount, they're they're not going to pursue it, or they think it's a case that they want to make an example of. So there's a, there's a number of reasons they don't report it, and and the, probably another reason is that the time and effort it takes to uh, prosecute someone and um, 
actually put them in jail, it's, they may think it's not worth it. Right. The the sad thing is, though, you you fire somebody and then you can't say anything about them, and except you know the amount of time that they work there, and uh, and then they get another job and do it somewhere else. Right. So it's crazy. We're speaking with Steve Zamuson, who is a certified public accountant, and he is also a terrific forensic accountant right here in Newport Beach. You can learn more about him at uh, zamuson.com. And now we're going to get into some other interesting, you know, all of us want to, you know, build our wealth. And me as one of these, you know, empty nesters now who's thinking of someday of retiring, you know, we all want to look at like, how can we build our wealth? So there is just a tremendous amount of um, fear of fraud and poor investments. Yet, you know, the survey, you heard me talking in the beginning about the survey that just came out is that, you know, more educated um, higher income men get sus- are more susceptible to to investment fraud. That was a pretty interesting uh, survey from the SEC. Yeah, that was interesting, uh, and I and and I, I like the uh, beginning of your show, and um, and uh, and I think um, it, it it shows the um, almost the target person that these people look for. Right. And, and, you know, I've been to the, some of the real estate seminars where they have the dinner and, you know, I, I look and I'm real skeptical and I haven't bought anything yet, but they, they really are motivating. I have to tell you, these people are very engaging. They're, they're, um, almost flamboyant. They're, they get you all excited. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I enjoy listening to them. <laughs> I mean, a, a good promoter is, is, is really entertaining. Yeah. So let's talk about um, investment and getting wealth and thinking about that. People hear whether they're, they want to invest as university students or business people. Let's talk about um, all this experience and advice that you can give us. What are the investment alternatives for, for someone? Uh, well, you, you can, of course, invest in a public investment, which is um, stocks or, or bonds, for example, um, and and uh, that's of course uh, we all know about that through stockbrokers, and that has a lot of information. Or or you can invest uh, in private investments, and that's that's more what I um, I look to. Right. Let's let's talk a little bit about these private investments because I have known a lot of people in Orange County who have been hit by these Ponzi schemes. In fact, that recent article was talking about this guy in Orange County. Let's see who is uh, this is um, D W Heath and Associates that they're in jail right now in Riverside, <laughs> but they were accused of bilking hundreds of investors for you know a hundred. Um, let's see. Out of a hundred and eighteen million dollars, and it was a Ponzi scheme, and um, I guess the Ponzi scheme is where you take the the money that you get from the the new people and pay the people who've been in it for a while. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's how it works. I think I think it actually goes back to the uh, Roman Empire time. <laughs> really? Yeah, I think where the name started. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. So, and I've had clients of my own who. Uh, it was funny because as I was doing their divorce, I saw this one set of clients, and they were making like 25 30% interest per year. And I'm thinking, gee, can I get into this? Yeah, sure. And they were saying, well, they have, you know, very, very high income, and you have to be like a celebrity, or these people had a lot of money. They had a business. And I thought, hmm, why can't I get into this? And then they lost everything. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. And so it was another one of these Ponzi schemes, but... This uh, this guy was very engaging, and he could get you know millions of dollars from celebrities, and and once celebrities invest, then everybody else thinks, well, they must have great advisors, right? Right. If they're doing it, then maybe we should do it. Just like I felt like maybe I should do it. So right, right. Did, did they, Mari? They tell you what investments they put these people into? Um, I don't know. I I think it was private investments. Yeah. Yeah. Real estate. Type investment real probably. estate and some businesses and some um, I think it was some buildings that they were building yeah yeah, yeah over the years and uh, especially in Newport Beach you've seen some great promoters that unfortunately weren't honest but they uh, you know I've seen uh, investments from uh, uh, arbitrage um, you know uh, trying to, to time the uh, value let's say of the dollar against another currency overseas but actually the, the num- money never went into it to investing in uh, 
in art where you had a very high write-off in the uh, 80s, but actually the art was worthless, so the write-off was taken back by the IRS, and and you really mm-hmm. owe nothing to uh, t- uh, telephone booths before cell phones came around, but they'd sell you a telephone booth, booth in Blythe that you never would make any money on. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so they go on and on, but Newport Beach has been a haven for um, some interesting promoters. You know, I remember now that you had brought up about the IRS, I remember these clients, they had to pay quite a bit of taxes on all of this great income for a couple years. And then when everything fell out, they had their accountant try and help them to kind of recoup the the fraud losses, you know? Right. That was just a total mess. Right, oh, right. Oh, God, right. How, do you, how do you do that? How does the IRS deal with that? I mean, they were having a heck of a time. Yeah, well, they they did pretty good because the uh, in collecting the money because the, um, the 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 main tax shelters that these people did, for example, an oil and gas tax shelter that wasn't legitimate, um, or these other um, selling of some type of um, collectible product, but they had you sign a note that you never had to pay, and you and then you use the value of that note for your write off. But then, when the IRS caught up with these people, they they they'd already taken the write off. Now they had to recapture all that right office what they called phantom income so what happens uh, you're paying taxes on money you never got oh my gosh is there any relief for all these people who are victims of ponzi schemes you know with the irs and the franchise tax board i mean is there anything that they can do really uh not really if they if the irs disallows the write-off so that, that you know that's again if you go into a private investment um there's people you should check with to see if if the write-off makes any sense Wow, I know there are some. There is a section um, of the, and I don't know how this works. Maybe you can help me. But I know one sixty-five e of the tax code deals with fraud losses. So, for example, victims of identity theft, um, if they, under certain circumstances and depending on their income, they can write off fraud losses that they have for. Um, but it isn't a whole lot, and it depends on their income. I don't know if that's possible when you get in, involved in these Ponzi schemes. Yeah, I don't know the limitations, but yeah. in that case, it's it's an actual dollar amount loss. So I'm, I'm sure you can, um, you can you get a write off, but I don't know the limitations. Oh yeah, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about these private investments and and explain a little bit what what they are. Well, if just to give an overview of the private investments, you you could invest with a uh, in a in a private company. Uh, company not public it may go public, but it's not public at the time. Uh, as you know, you could either be a the majority owner or you could be a minority owner. Um, or just to give an overview, as everyone knows, you can invest in real estate as a majority owner, minority owner. Um, you can invest in um, trust deeds in in real estate, or you can invest in um, some other type of collectibles, as art, jewelry, etc. And then under uh, real estate. There's all types of real estate as a private investor. If you are buying an apartment house or part of an apartment house, a shopping center or, or a residential rental income or a foreclosure property or or a property, of course, you could be buying one in, in uh, out-of-state. Many people ran out-of-state now and bought properties because they thought they were cheaper and better values um, and California prices were too high. And then going back to uh, investments in trustees, you, you could own a trustee yourself, uh, trustee meaning uh, like a second uh, on a piece of property, or you could own a, a trustee with other people, which would be some type of fractional interest in it. Yeah. So, so give us some examples of investing in a private company. I know you've done some yourself. You want to share some ideas? Sure. I, I um, uh, fortunately had a father that, that um, liked uh, working by himself uh, years ago and uh, so we we were doing business uh, years ago together and uh, we owned some uh, um, retail liquor stores and then I I went into business brokerage with him selling businesses um, and we um, also uh, at the time uh, years ago we did a real estate syndication business where we put um, partnerships together bought some properties now, were those LLCs, or how, how did you? What kind of partnerships did you put together? Limited partnerships, or? right? Right. Those days were limited partnerships. Now, mm-hmm. now they're LLCs. And do you like the LLC movement, uh, and and why? Yeah, that seems that seems very very smart um, because you, you're in the other partnerships. You may, if you're general partners, and I'm, I might want to give legal advice, but just um, 
uh, knowing that if you're a general partner, you have unlimited liability, and so if two people buy a property as a general partner, it, it's you're exposed. Where if you have an LLC, you you um, can limit your liability, um, and so that's usually the pattern everyone's going. So, do you have any tax advantage of being um, a limited a limited liability company? What kind of tax advantage do you have? Well, you you actually uh, file you can file a return as a partnership, and then and then if you have a loss. And, and it might just be a tax loss because of some depreciation write-off. Um, you can uh, that may flow through to your personal tax return, so you get a you get a write-off, or you could you could file as a corporation or an LLC. Um, the state has a separate form as an as a limited liability company, but the federal you you can pick an, uh, another entity. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, what other kind of things you? I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, that's okay. I. I um, I'm, right now, this I was looking at um, um, a computer forensic company with a, with a couple of individuals that uh, actually um, um, do that for the police department, and so that seemed to be an interesting private um, uh, business to look at because everything's paperless now, and um, and that company is just just a, a, a background on that. What they do is obviously go into a computer that's um, and try to figure out what's on the computer many times it's for um, a, a litigation case to see if they what accounting records on there that someone needs to uh, present to a court or there could be some other emails or data that um, uh, someone's looking for I, I remember there was a um, recent case a couple years ago where a major uh, sports agent was sued and he was able to go into the computer of the um, um, uh, the individual that um, had taken the data or started his own business and, and showed up a pattern of, of taking away the clients, and, and there was an over $100 million verdict on that lawsuit. Right. The computer forensics is is a huge, it's absolutely huge now, and there's not enough people, at least in law enforcement, that know how to do it. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm on the high-tech crime unit with the Sheriff Reserve, and I'm not one of the techies, but we have some wonderful techies in our unit that provide a lot of tremendous help to to law enforcement because most of the law enforcement guys really aren't trained in computer forensics, and they have, and that's what they have to do now, you know, to find the the fraud and in, in the economic crime. So uh, that sounds like it's it's a, a real good investment if the people are know what, what what they're doing and they're honest. So how do you tell? You know, how do you know, Steve, when you're considering these kinds of investments, what do you do in terms of your due diligence? Well, if if you um, look, are looking at an investment, let's go back to the trustee investment. Um, and uh, right now I have clients that look at those, and, and, and I was looking at them um, mainly because the, um, the interest rates are going up. So um, a second trustee may be 10 11%. And... Um, and it might be on a um, should be on a local property. At least my clients look at local properties. And and what I'll do for them, and partially for myself, is um, is you have to do your due diligence. You can't just have the promoter actually call you up and say I have something, and you mail them a check. Even though uh, this one promoter I know is who's very reputable and been in the business over 25 years, collects about or raises about two million dollars a month, and he actually uh, just sends out information and people. To send them checks, but but I I guess I'm too old fashioned and and um, so I'll I'll actually go look at the property um, and uh, right away um, take pictures of the property. I'll I'll call brokers on signs and uh, and then I'll try to find a, a local um, real estate appraiser and we can find that through our organizations and I'll ask him what he what he thinks the price per square foot of the uh, office building is in that area um, or what what he thinks the land sales for um, we'll, we'll go on our computers also and look up the the uh, comparable sales to make sure it's reasonable um, I'll get a preliminary title report which is a report showing all the liens on the property go through every lien to make sure that if if I do give a loan or some one of my clients gives a loan that it ends up in the right position and then the uh, last thing I do which um, which I always uh, ask permission to do this, but I've never been turned down. Is is I will go meet the person that wants to give a loan and um, for a cup of coffee and, uh, and make sure that I'm comfortable with that person and uh, he's um, and I think that he has a an exit strategy. I think what what a lot of people do in investments is they forget the 
to put themselves in the other person's shoes that they have to someday pay you off and how are they going to do it. Right. So the exit strategy is like, how do I, how do I pay you off in five years? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> how are you going to do it? And, and uh, yeah, I know I, I got burned on a second trustee on um, a former home that I had. I, you know, people, and I thought they'd be good because she was a realtor and, and he was a general contractor. And, um, and then they filed bankruptcy, and then they called me in and said, please, we want to keep the house. We are going to pay you, and et cetera, et cetera, and they didn't. And um, by the time they ruined the house, it, I had to let it go, and I, and I lost. It was, it was, you know, a, a substantial amount of money, for me at least. It was $30,000 to just lose it like that. You know, I've been... That's a lot of money. Yeah, I, I was really uh, burnt by that, and right, um, right. and you know I was trying to be a nice guy, and of course she was the realtor of the company that I sold my sold my uh, house. So, <laughs> yeah. what can I tell you? Yeah, so? but see that that's easy to do because yeah. because you you like them and you're trying to help them out, and but they uh, and I, I think uh, what you have to do, which which is difficult to do when you're making an investment and getting enthused about it, is is do the worst case. Right. And and worst case is they don't pay you and and then they file bankruptcy and you probably know better than I do, Mari, but that's yeah. how many months is that? They probably took four or five months in bankruptcy court and Yeah. Well yeah. she filed bankruptcy and asked me, Can we keep this out of the bankruptcy and oh, we're gonna we're gonna pay you and you know, they were crying and yeah. you know, and I they said, We'll pay a little more interest and I said, you know, anything please let us do it and, and I said, Okay and then you know, then they ruined the house and it just <laughs> And at that point, it wasn't worth it for me to buy it. I mean, I could have bought it, but it it wasn't it wasn't the right time. So I, you know, I had to kind of let go. Yeah, and sometimes about, you lose, and you feel ripped off. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a terrible feeling. It was back. It was that about ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 See, so yeah, you know, that's you know, prices change, so th- that was easy to happen. Yeah, I should have bought it because then the house went way up in yeah. value. Yeah. I should have done anything to buy it, but um, but yeah. I didn't do that. So, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to make some of these decisions because you don't know what's really going to happen. Do you know what I mean? So, so what when you do these um, second trustees, do you usually do that with an LLC also, so that if you lose something, you don't lose as much one person? Or uh, what is your suggestion on something like that? Right. Yeah, I, I think you're probably best to put it in some type of um, um, a corporation when you make your investments since you have some protection. If, if you, and I don't know the laws thoroughly on residential because I, I mainly look to commercial when I do this with my clients, but um, the, um, the uh, um, but residential, if, uh, if, you, if the promoter has done something uh, illegal, I think it's a possibility that you, you may also be sued even if you're just one of the investors that put up the loan. Uh-huh. So it's it's really critical to know who the promoter is and make sure their paperwork is right. Right. So you, a lot of times you, you probably want to protect yourself in some type of um, um, corporation or some type of uh, LLC. Um, LLC or partnership. And and also a lot of times that changes your identity if because if you record a trust deed with your name, it's public record and everyone knows Right, yeah. right, right. Well, if you do it in an LLC, you do it in the name of the LLC. Right. Yeah. So when you do these investments in second trustees, it's usually a group that, that invests and gives the loan. Is that what it is? So that, right, that right. It's usually a couple of us going together, and, uh, and, uh, or they do it individually. Right. And, and that's only happened just recently because the uh, um, interest rates have changed. Right, right. Yeah. So, so what are the returns um, in investing in a private company? I mean, how are they different from, you know, just going in and getting some mutual funds? What do you think? Well, the, the returns should be projected to be higher than investing in a public company because of the increased risk. And um, so um, to, to give an exact percentage is difficult, but, you know, many times somebody would want to get their money back within one to three years. And... Um, and then have a, a, a hypothetically an a, uh, infinite return on their investment since they have no investment, and assuming they don't have to put any more money back in. And that sounds like, well, why doesn't everybody do that? But um, it's uh, difficult to find a private deal that, um, or private investment that, that you're comfortable with. Right. So someone who isn't as savvy as to numbers and, and all this as you, I mean, is that something that you, you should go and speak 
with who, who should you get to help you? Should you get a forensic accountant or should you get someone like a CPA firm to help you check out these kinds of investments or uh, what do you do? Well, you um, business appraisers are, are, a, are a great start. If, um, if you're buying a private company, there is an appraiser out there that has done a lot of similar businesses. So in other words, when I had to appraise a number of Toyota dealerships and a Nissan dealership, and but specifically in a Toyota dealership, I, I um, hadn't done one before, and this was years ago. So I actually found um, um, through networking one CPA that all he does is um, car dealerships, accounting for car dealerships, and and knew uh, a lot of information on selling them and what they sell for. And then I was able to meet um, uh, one gentleman that um, – that owns about um, five of them, and he was nice enough to let me meet with him. And I went through all the uh, methods of uh, appraising a uh, a car dealership. But but anyway, there there are a lot of appraisers out there that if someone called me, I'd be happy to help them find the right person that knows a lot about that industry. Because right, because we, even even appraisers, anybody can put out a little sign. Hey, I'm a business appraiser, and then they may be used to doing one kind of business, and then you ask them to do another, and it's really foreign to them. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you were talking about why doesn't everybody invest in private enterprise if it's, you know, you're expecting a higher rate of return? Uh, because the main reasons are, you know, private companies have a number of problems. One is that they usually are undercapitalized, and, uh, and another problem is they, they, they usually don't have enough management. And so, um, and then, so you really have to find that exceptional um, person that is going to stick it out to make sure the company works, and then the um, Make sure they know how they're going to get enough money to keep going. So that's 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 why most fail. Like yeah. Re- restaurants fail and uh, other. But then then you'll find one that um, like I I have a a uh, I was fortunate to um, find have a friend that lives in Sacramento. I've known for over twenty some years, and and he's he's a developer and he's he does very well now. He's very wealthy. He's only about forty seven, but <laughs> but he he went through many years of tough times and um, and always paid everyone back with uh, fair interest and uh, and uh, so he's an exception and whatever it took for him to make in the business he did yeah and and that's the kind of guy that you'll go back to because they he makes good maybe he doesn't make it exactly when he says he's going to do it but he he makes good on it so you that builds trust right yeah and that's the whole idea you know who do you invest with do you you want to invest with someone you trust and nowadays with all the fraud that's going on you never you know you never know who to trust that's uh, that's the scary part. I want to just in- reintroduce you. We're talking to Steve Zamuson, who's a CPA right here in Newport Beach. He's a forensic accountant. He's a certified fraud examiner. He he knows the ins and outs of, of money and investing, and he's giving us some, some good help because, you know, Steve, the, the issue for a lot of people is, you know, we don't know who to trust nowadays, and when we talk to our accountant, um, we're giving you a lot of very sensitive information. Not only do you know about how much money we have in our in our taxes, but you also need to know something about our life strategy, right? I mean, to do the, some of the planning that we have when we're investing. Sure. And uh, and where we are in life, you know, do we when do we want to retire? <laughs> I mean, it, you can't get too risky if you're thinking of retiring in a year, and unless you want to do like this poor guy that lost his whole nest egg. So, um, so tell me about. You were also talking about that. You were telling me about this architect that you met a year and a half ago, and and what what did you learn from him? You bought a building together. Well, that, yeah, that's um, uh, my. Uh, I think a funny story to me is I I was buying a building which I'm sitting in right now in Irvine, and um, it um, was about fifteen thousand feet, and it was sinking on two sides. It's actually near the Orange County Airport, not too far. And, and the soil around here is um, expansive soil. So the, so over the years, the building had, had sunk about uh, two feet on each side, so it was getting lower and lower. So um, uh, it, was, it was quite a, a, a big project. So I was walking around the building with an architect and a structural engineer, and, and they asked me if, they, if I needed an investor. And I said, sure, because this building was really... Um, kind of scaring me to buy it and, <laughs> yeah. and and so we uh, went over and had a cup of coffee and um, struck up a partnership and then it took us about a month to get to know each other and um, and actually uh, 
I, I did run a check on my partner, and he probably ran it on me because we didn't know each other. Right. And, and um, but then you never know how hard each one of us is going to work after we buy the building and make sure it works. And fortunately, he uh, he's one of the uh, nicest guy and smartest guys I've met, and um, so we were able to fix it up and rent it. Uh, yeah, so and that, that was kind of lucky, too, to be honest with you. I yeah. Mean, now, yeah. that's another thing you were talking about. You did a check on each other. Actually, uh, one of the permissible purposes under the Fair Credit Reporting Act in terms of getting someone's credit report is um, if you're going to be doing investing with someone. So, um, yeah, you're allowed to actually get someone's credit report um, when you are thinking of um, investing with them to see if how, you know, what is their credit worthiness and and you know how un- encumbered are they? Is that something that you do, Steve? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we don't do it um, personally. Right. I mean, we we look at the public records that we can find, and uh, but um, well, I'll ask somebody to help me on that. Right. But I mean, but it is a permissible purpose, and people need to know that they can do that. And and you can even ask the person to pull the credit report because now they can do it at annualcreditreport.com for free. You know yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. So so um, tell us what are the top three areas you need to look at, um, look for when you're buying or investing in a private business. Well, what, one area is not um, is to make sure you understand uh, the business. You're talking about buying a private business here. Right. Right. And um, so you really have to find an uh, in- industry expert. Um, and to really understand what's good and bad about the uh, about the industry, I, I had to value a uh, company that made gold chains about two months ago, and I didn't really—I've never seen one of those companies. And they and they actually um, borrow money out of they borrow they they get the gold out of New York, and they put up a letter of credit, and the uh, and the uh, they have to pay back the gold in gold someday. So huh. if gold's going up, they have to pay back a lot goes going down, then it's not as much. So um, it was an interesting business uh, because they to try to figure out what they were really making. And I did find a, a CPA that actually dealt with that. He was my industry expert, and he, in about an hour, he explained how the whole um, the risk of the business. So the other people you could talk to is is the um, there might be a vendor. Or, uh, a, mar- a marketing rep in the area that goes to all the different businesses and um, and sells them something. Th- those people are very knowledgeable. So, so if you have somebody that sells copy machines and he's selling them to uh, printing shops, he'll tell you what shops are doing well and which ones aren't if you get to know them. Right, and he'll say if they pay their bills on time. <laughs> right, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, he'll know. He didn't get his commission. He'll tell you. That's that's a good idea. So so. Yeah, how do you find that? Do you ask, like, who are some of your vendors? Do you do that? or? Sure, sure. Who, yeah, who's the manufacturing reps or what? where do you buy your equipment? And uh, and then you call that company and ask you who your manufacturing reps are. They normally have never asked that question, but, you know, if they, they get to know you, you just tell me you want general information, nothing confidential. They'll tell you all about the industry. Um, another another um, thing to do is to call somebody's competitor outside the area, which is not a direct competitor. So, um so they they will tell you something about the um, the industry, and um, and so you're not really prying into a direct competitor that might not give you all the information since they're competing day to day. Right, and they may lie because they want to make it look bad or something. Right. <laughs> you know, they, right, right. They, they don't want the competition either. That or they'll say, "Hey, it's really great" because they figure you're a dummy and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. And another area would be not being realistic in the time commitment it, it takes to buy into or run a private business or check on it. Oh yeah, you know, Steve. I remember years ago. You know, my dad was a furrier by profession. He used to make fur coats literally from scratch. He'd go to the mink farm and everything. But he always had this thing where he'd love to invest in other things. So I remember he bought this restaurant. This was in Chicago area. And um, unfortunately, um, it was a chicken restaurant. It was great. We used to stop there all the time. And when the guy was selling, my dad bought it. But then we didn't know that they were running a new freeway right in front of it, which uh-huh. would take away from the, um, you know, from all, all the people that used to stop there because it, they bypassed it now with the freeway. And I'll never forget how my mother wanted to kill him for that. Yeah. And then well, he sold it, and then the guy who bought it was so smart, he put an ice skating rink on the on the roof. Oh, really? <laughs> 
to, and then he had all these little big signs say, come and eat this chicken and go ice skating. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, unfortunately, my dad wasn't that smart to do it. But, you know, you have to, like, look at not only what the business is doing now, but what are they building around it? Because, you know, I mean, if if he would have gone maybe to the... I don't know where do you find out about. Oh what yeah, that's see, that's we have a checklist when we we go through with clients, and we wrote a guide called the uh, merger and acquisition guide, or just buying a company guide, really, and 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 we went through a checklist of about thirty five things you have to look at, and that was one of them. Is is what's the eminent domain impact, or is anything being condemned in the area? And uh, but that's usually one that no one really looks at. Right. Expected. Yeah. Or if you go to the zoning commission to see, like, what are they going to do? Are they going to build build a freeway? Do you know what I mean? If, sure. if he would have known that they were going to build the expressway right there, I right. think he would have changed his mind. And and I don't know. Now, when you have the duty to disclose, um, is does that affect the commercial too? I think. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Nowadays, yeah. maybe he could have gone back and said, "You didn't disclose that they're going to build this thing." <laughs> right. Right. But but then again, if. Caltrans is—they may not have it on the list yet. It might be. Oh. You know, we, we we did it. On, you know, remember Highway Five and how how um, difficult that was about seven eight years ago. Um, before you got to Disneyland, heading from South Orange County. County now, past Disneyland, they're they're going to be taking a lot of businesses there, and. Uh, but you wouldn't have known that 10 years ago, possibly. Right, right. So you invest in something, and then all these horrible things happen. And then and then there's the thing where, I, I just have to tell, this is a funny one, because um, my father, as I told you, my father always loved to invest in different businesses, you know, crazy things, oil wells and stuff like that that didn't work. But How did what, he do? Did he well, do well? you know, he, he always, thank God, he always had his business, and he did very well with his business. He had a retail uh, first store down in uh, a suburb of Chicago, and then he had a downtown one where he would have a wholesale store. So that really um, helped him. But we used to go to Florida when I was a kid to get away from the snow. So one time my mother wanted, uh, my father wanted to buy this this swamp land. And uh, my mother said, don't you buy that? You know, you're always buying all these crazy things. And um, that swamp land turned into the Fountain Blue. And if you've ever been to Miami Beach, the Fountain Blue. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, you know what? He always had these good ideas, and that was the one thing that she wouldn't let him do, that he never let her forget. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Because right now I would own every radio station in the country. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That was I told you so. Yeah, yeah, right, right. For years he said, I told you so. Yeah. So, okay, and just tell us, we have just a couple of minutes. How how do you assess the individual or the company? We talked about doing a a background check and a thorough check. Anything else? Well, we, we, um, uh, you're buying a private business. You you do a, um, a, um, Search on the individual. One thing, or the or the owners. One thing you should try to find out is what they've done in the past. I mean, uh, any anybody that gets you know to um, um, you know in their fifties, they've they've had a lot of experiences, and then you want to make sure that you go through every business they started and stopped, which is a lot of public records at what corporations they've been involved in. Right. And um, and then see what they did in, in each one of those businesses, if they can tell you. And so you have, it's almost like looking at a resume. And um, so that you do a background check, not only what the person's doing now, but you know, has he defrauded anybody in the past? Has he, right. Uh, has he been in jail? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ba- yeah. Well, right now there are so many information brokers that you literally, because, and we have no oversight for information brokers, you literally could go and, and do a business background check in a lot of places and done in Bradstreet and, and all that stuff. But, but you're right. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, can we give some quick tips and and your website so people know that uh, they can where they can get some help in in private investing? Let's uh, have you give out your website first and then kind of go over some tips. It's it's zamusen dot com z a m u c e n and uh, we we have guides or books that we write. Mari, if anyone would like any copies, we'd be happy to give them some. Um, and one book is how to value over a hundred private companies, and uh, so there might be basic information if someone's looking to buy a business. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And the one that you had about, um, you know, the checklist, that's really good. Is that on your website? That's, I think it is, Merger and Acquisition Guide. Right. And so that's there, and they could call my office and request one. Um, your office number is 949 uh, 955 right? Right. 
Right. And right. then um, and then we have a uh, uh, another book on the uh, CPA is an expert witness. It's it's somebody that's going to court. If they need a CPA, what they can do for you. And um, then we have a few other ones that are probably a little more technical, but um, my partners wrote some good books. But th- those are the ones that involve uh, investing in uh, businesses. Yeah. So I think we should give some tips. Like, we, I guess the, the one thing is what I heard from you is be skeptical, right? I mean, don't just take it on face value. This sounds like a good deal, right? Be skeptical. Uh, do your due diligence. Uh, actually go out to uh, the properties. If you're looking at a property, go out to the business, talk to competitors, find suppliers in the industry. If you're buying a business, find talk to the professional community. If um, someone calls me and I, I can find a CPA that probably knows that industry and um, talk to talk to bankers um, and do a, a thorough check and, and, and assume that what's going to happen if everything doesn't go well. Yeah. Assume the worst and prepare for it ahead of time. Right. 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 And, and well, thank you so much for joining us. We are out of time. See, we didn't, we had hardly any time left here to even uh, finish up. So thank you so much, Steve. We've been talking to Steve Zamuson, who is a CPA in Newport Beach. Steve, you'll come back again. And um, he is, his website is zamuson.com. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And thank you, Jake, for being such a great engineer and filling in. And you will um, be able to listen to all of our uh, previous interviews and see who's coming up at our website. And join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. at KUCI.org. And after this, you can listen to... Assorted Audio from 6 to 8, then Wonderful Rainbow from 8 to 10, and Straight Outta Ilvine from 10 to 12. Thanks again, and thanks again, Jake. You're wonderful. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.